I'm not sure there's anything more challenging to human existence than the reality of death. In this episode, Pastor Danielle and Rabbi Ari discuss their experiences, both personal and professional, and what lessons we could draw from the diverse ways we react and respond to people dying. Crying, bad sermons at funerals, and trusting a trustworthy God. This week on A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. Today for us is the uh, eve of Kristallnacht, uh, the 79th anniversary of the night of broken glass, Kristall mm-hmm. is glass, and Nacht is night in Germany when the big death dying began. Um, the Holocaust actually began that night. Um, so we're going to talk about death and how we as <laughs> just clergy... To, just to be uplifting in the middle of it's right. a difficult week. Yeah. How we as clergy respond to death and what our uh, people expect us to say and what we actually say in our burial customs and mm-hmm. other issues concerning death and how we treat bodies. And I think it's apropos not only because of the um, 79th anniversary of Kristallnacht, but also because of the events that happened this last Sunday, again, um, in a church in Texas and and the loss of life of of 26 individuals 27 including the you know the um murderer murderer yeah and and how frightening that is and how as soon as we hear news like that i think all of us think not just our hearts breaking for um the pastor who loses his 14 year old daughter or um, you know, all of the, the family it's lost, you know, generations. Our hearts break for those who are hurting and those that um, that survived but, but lived through such horror. And, and in those moments, um, as we wrestle with all that, we also think about, like, gee, where, what would I have done and where would I go? And we start to go into fear and anxiety and survival and things because um, death is permanent. Right. It, it's so um, for Christians, you know, we can talk about how it's a comma that punctuates life. Um, right. Where so it's like sort of, um, yes, with this part of our life ends, but we expect a, a life to come that we're all looking forward to. But I don't think anyone's hastening to, to try to make that next to pass the comma any, anytime soon. And so when we think about when we're, we're stuck and, and struck with events like this, either of, of history or of modern day, I think all of us are are wrestling with mortality and trying to understand uh, what do you say in moments like this? What should you not say? Um, all of those types of things, yeah. People who lived through the Holocaust and saw their entire families wiped out. Right. There were people in Texas who, there mm-hmm. were two whole families that mm-hmm. were wiped out. I don't know if the, the entirety of the family right. were wiped out. I always wonder, you know, how, how do you pick yourself up and begin again? Right. Sometimes I think I would rather be dead with them, right. the rest of my right. family, God forbid, <clears throat> just mm-hmm. so that I don't have to live with that hole in my heart because I've seen people walking around with them. But I've also seen people who survived the Holocaust right. who were able right. to build a new family together. I was talking with a friend of mine, a rabbi in town with whom I study, we have a phrase that we say hmm. uh, when we hear bad news. There's a blessing for good news and a hmm. blessing for bad news. And the blessing for bad news is what we also say when we hear of a death, and it is Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, praise be the true judge. Hmm. And I was telling him that I get up in the morning and I say my morning prayers, 
And then I open the paper, and then I say, Baruch Dayan HaEmet, Baruch Dayan HaEmet, Baruch Dayan HaEmet, because every single story almost is about the death here, death there, some other death. You say you say it over and over and over again. I said, yes, <laughs> every time I don't know how to not mm-hmm. respond that mm-hmm. way. And the concept of saying, blessed be the true judge, is to say, we don't know what this is all about, and it certainly doesn't make any sense in this side of the world, but uh, the only thing you can say is, God willing, it makes sense somewhere. Right. I, I think um, it, it's that idea for me that I'm trusting that we're all in God's hands, right? That And that that's a good place to be. That's a trustworthy place to be, that, I, that concept of the true judge, right? That there's um, some... The the thing we cling to is that maybe there's some possible way of taking this great evil, like that which you intended for evil, you know, God will mm-hmm. use for good, right? That that when we talk about redemption or or even resurrection, believing that there can be life after death, um, even for the the survivor who watched their loved ones um, die, they also are in need of resurrection. Right. So they're they're not looking maybe to come back from a physical grave presently, but they are. I would have, I would need resurrection life. There would be no other way to take in a new breath except by some sort of miracle, because it would be so devastating. And I think that's what makes, um, you know, whether we're talking about a tragic incident, something horrific that we we think through as pastors and rabbis and, you know, people that care for congregations and people who enter houses of worship on a weekly basis and all of those types of things, whether we, we respond to that or even just the death and passing of somebody who's lived life well, you know, well into like to 120, right? They, they had the fullness of all of their years. They could still see very well. They were full of vigor and they, they had every marble. They had every marble in their head. All, everything was wonderful. And they just, you know, passed from this this life to the next, um, there's still loss there, right? Yeah. Unless that person lived a life where nobody liked them, <laughs> nobody wanted to be with them. Uh, and for me, whether it was, you know, watching my best friend pass away when she was 28 and lose, um, lose and ultimately win, right? A battle with cancer. She's not suffering any longer. I used to tell people all the time, you know, the reason why I'm sad is because she was so wonderful, Right. That if I had nothing to mourn here, that would be because she wouldn't be worth mourning. There's something that that as we express that loss and as we try to manage with the death where, you know, we're all all of us will die. Right. The mortality rate's 100 percent. Well, I want to say that, uh, you know, someone who dies at the end of a fullness of their life, we say it's sad, but not tragic. Right. That's right. And when you have someone young, Mm -hmm. it's sad and tragic, and, tragic yeah. and the, the the really sad thing about a funeral of somebody who died at a very old age is that there's almost nobody at the funeral right unless they live in a small town where there's an extended family that they generated with their right. own body and they all come but the people who know them all their friends all they're all gone a lot of the people who come to those funerals are the caregivers mm-hmm. uh, from the assisted living or whatever right. and um and me and mm-hmm. so i try to invoke the spirits of all the friends and family that right. they knew when they were alive and and try to fill the space in the room or on the hillside mm-hmm. with those uh, spirits. Right. Call the, them ghosts. Right, right. The the presence and the memories of the people. In in the book of Hebrews we have a um, a passage that talks about running the race, um, with, and that watching us is a great cloud of witnesses. 
um, that we that all of the people that have gone before, right? That they and it's not. I mean, it's just a metaphor. It's not like we actually believe that these. But but this idea that this great cloud of witnesses sits there with us. I like this idea. My my first experience with death was the death of my great aunt Nell mm-hmm. Nell Cooper. She had one word. Her first name and last name was Nell Cooper, and uh, <laughs> and everybody calls her Nell Cooper. And and she died, and I was eleven or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was Catholic. Mm-hmm. Most that half of my family was Catholic. And it was an open casket funeral, but I, right. it was my first funeral, and I had no idea. And people were following up down the, mm-hmm. to see, and I was just following my parents. And I looked into the casket, and there she was dead, and I just I fainted and fell to my knee. I'd never seen a dead body before. Right. And one of the things that, that Jews do not do mm-hmm. is open casket mm-hmm. funerals. And the mm-hmm. reason we don't, uh, at least the way it's been explained to me, is that it's not a commandment from the Torah is that without the soul to animate the body the body you 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 can paint it up but Mm -hmm. it doesn't look like the person the person is gone right right. it's just the shell and uh and so uh that's that's one big difference between Mm -hmm. Jewish funerals Mm -hmm. and other funerals when they do display Mm -hmm. the body I mean they mummified Lenin's body uh, you can see that. I saw that when I went right, there. Right, right. Yeah, me too. Um, it's funny. My my first funeral that I remember going to is my great uncle, and um, and he looked a lot like my grandfather, and was also Catholic, even though my family wasn't. We were all Lutheran at that point, and the side of the family was still Catholic. And I remember walking forward and seeing his body in the casket, and he looked so much like my grandfather, who was still living. It was very disconcerting. Wow. Um, but that was that's my first memory also but i've i think for for christians there's a lot of different traditions we have um some people right more tends to be more in the catholic church but in other places as well where um you'll have an open casket others prefer closed and and then some people do just a memorial right and you're not there by a gravesite and there is no body in the room um and then other people will do cremation or something like that and then you just have an internment at a cemetery. So we, we kind of have that whole mix of everything and having been a pastor now for 20 some odd years. Um, I think it's always been most difficult when standing by a tiny casket versus a a large one. I know. And I've, the first time I, uh, officiated at the funeral of a less than a month old child, Mm. um, which I unfortunately had to do several times. I just could not believe how small the hole was, yeah, and how small the box was, yeah. And um, uh, even though you're not required to have a funeral for someone who dies less than 31 days mm. old, mm. they're not considered to actually have ever been here. Mm. Um, most there, there are some sticklers who would say it's forbidden, but uh, within within Jewish practice, yeah, yeah. But mm. I, 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 after my very first funeral. I, I decided I would not impose rigmarole mm-hmm. and my craziness right. on anybody who's right. suffering from that kind of grief. Right. I just, right. you know, I might have a rule for a bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. I'll have another rule for a wedding, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't have any. Right. You know, I, I'm not going to ride in on a horse, but I mean, I'm, I'm just not, mm-hmm. I'm not going to put stuff on their head. They have enough to deal with at that point. That's right. And I've heard people, rabbis, 
priests, pastors, all mm-hmm. kinds of imams. I've heard everybody. I've been in all kinds of funerals. And I've heard the worst BS, <laughs> which for me is an abbreviation for baseless sanctity. Right, right. Very good. <laughs> I've, I've heard stuff coming out of their mouths that horrified me. Yeah. Just horrified me. And I figured, how can you do this to people? Mm-hmm. They're hurting enough while you're making them feel worse. Right, right. Yeah. I... Um, so crazy. I uh, another you talk about interment and uh, uh, the first time I saw a non-casket funeral was mm. in Israel. Mm. I was there in 1982 during the first war in Lebanon, and a friend of mine's son died. Mm. He was a tank commander, and, mm. he, and he and his tank crew were killed in battle. Mm. And in Israel, it's very small. I mean, the whole state is about smaller than the Bay Area, right. and um, and so uh, everybody can get there, and they're buried that day or the next day mm-hmm. boom mm-hmm. and they carried him to the cemetery on mount herzl the military mm-hmm. cemetery there in jerusalem and uh, in a casket and then they took his body which was wrapped in shrouds and we have right. traditional shrouds um they, they cover the entire body and over the face etc so you don't see any of it and they just took the body out and put it in the hole and then everybody we all we all bury. That's another mm-hmm. tradition. Is we all mm-hmm. take part in burying mm-hmm. the the body, mm-hmm. and it was the first time. I mean, I'd been to a whole lot of funerals by that time. I was already a rabbi for ten years, and I had done at many many funerals, and all of them had been in boxes, or except for the ones that were cremated. And um, it was the first time I'd ever seen that. And let me say one more thing about boxes. So coffin box, um, it is forbidden to spend the money of the living. On the dead. Hmm. It's not so much that you can't mm-hmm. pay for a funeral. You can, but you shouldn't go overboard. You should mm-hmm. only pay what you need to do. Mm-hmm. So the least expensive coffin right, is right. the most honorable one. Nice. I like that. And, um, and, and, and there are these people who have these Cadillac coffins. Yeah. I mean, and it's really funny. So if you go into a mortuary and you mm-hmm. want to search for a coffin, it's like anything else. They put the most expensive stuff in the front. You have to go it's all the way to the back. And so when I meet with people, I tell them how to pick one. I say, just forget about all that. Just go as far back into the room right. as you can get to the, get to the plane, uh, to the plane coffins. And a lot of people talk about a plain pine coffin. Well, there's nothing in the Bible about a plain pine coffin. It's basically to have, like I say, the least right. expensive one, which at one particular time was one made without nails because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. nails were made out of metal and metal work was more expensive than the wooden right. pegs right. they put it together. <clears throat> but now nails are cheaper to do than wooden pegs. So there's an awful lot of handwork that goes into these plain pine coffins, which makes them more expensive <laughs> than the nail one. But, but like anything else that people do, after a while they begin to make sermons on the value of a plain pine coffin saying, no, you can't use nails because they won't disintegrate before the messiah comes oh dear i know and i say don't worry about it you know the sun's (laughs) gonna go nova before that it's not gonna be an issue but (laughs) right well you know we'll find any way to complicate things i I, it's really amazing how our religions get encrusted Mm. with traditions that have nothing to do with nothing Mm -hmm. and just bring the cost up Mm. and now i also know like in in judaism there's the tradition that when you hear of the death of the passing of somebody that you rend your garments you you rip them so you want to maybe tell well that's that was you know jacob who heard about joseph Mm -hmm. tore his Mm -hmm. cloak and uh and so it we don't know why it doesn't say why it just says that so all the, the sermon machine goes into full operation and says it's and this is probably very good it symbolizes a 
ripped open heart. Right. And I think um, today in modern Israel, like if somebody's in mourning, they'll wear, you know, just a normal collared shirt, but they'll still have like a corner of it ripped or something like right. that. So it's it's a memory for them as they walk around. And I think it also uh, a sign for people who encounter them that this is a person who's who's mourning, right? who's dealing with some and loss. And in older times, people didn't have as many changes of clothes right. as we do today. So if they rip their garment, then it was pretty ripped for the whole week because they weren't right. going to change uh, or bathe or anything. We don't... You know. Right, sackcloth and ashes. And that, that tearing is called kriah. Hmm. That's the Hebrew word for it. And since people have so many clothes now, we don't tear them necessarily because mm. you're going to change your clothes. Mm-hmm. So you have, to, you have to rip everything. Mm-hmm. But the ripping is supposed to be for like the first moment. So there is a black ribbon Mm. On, a, on a pin button mm. that you wear. It's called the Kriya ribbon. Mm. And that way you can take it and put it on the next thing you're wearing mm. and the next thing, and you rip the ribbon. Mm-hmm. Mm. So uh, most uh, Jews don't rip their clothes unless they're very traditional and know mm-hmm. about it. And um, so the rabbi brings these ribbons in the Jewish mortuaries. We have mm. the ribbons. And as part of the first thing in a funeral, we stand up and say, Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, praise be the true judge, and rip the ribbon open. Mm. And then that goes along uh, for the rest of the week of, uh, of mourning. So in the um, Gospels, we have this portion of our story that um, at the death of Jesus, that the veil um, at the temple was ripped, was ripped yeah. um, from top to bottom, which is always mentioned because it wasn't, you know, from the bottom to the top, it wasn't a human ripping, but from oh. the very, very top to the bottom. And... Um, that sound of ripping fabric, right? I mean, for that rending of the ripping, it does sound like something's being torn apart. And there's something powerful for me in that image that um, at the death of of Jesus, that God's, you know, God's son, that God rends God's own garment, for lack of the a better word, the, right? the veil of the temple. Yeah. Um, so we have some of that, at least in our um, Christian narrative story, but we don't have that practice um, as as part of our regular practice, but what I we have tons of practices which I'm not going to lecture you about right now. Right. But are there any standard practices that you can think that Christians do? That's you know, general. I mean, as you mentioned, there's lots of different kinds of Christians, but right. I uh, it I don't know if there's standard Orthodox. I'm sure there is, but I think specifically, I mean, if you're if you're Catholic, you'll have last rites. Right, read prior to somebody passing away, and you want to get that person there right away. Um, you'll have um, people who will come to anoint the body, um, just with some anointing oil, you know, spike nard or something like that. Um, but I've not. You don't do that. I no, I don't do that, and I've not been invited into any of those practices. I mean, I think there's more tradition to be found prior to the person's passing. So if you're invited to the um, bedside of somebody who is on death's door, right? They might, if they're still present, they might want to take communion one more time. They would maybe like uh, um, some prayers, like the Our Father prayer, and the prayer Jesus teaches, um, or hearing Psalm 23, these types of things. The Lord but, is my shepherd. Right, yeah. the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So, so there's but some... But the thing that ends with, and I'll dwell in God's house forever. And I will dwell in God's house forever, right. So there's there's those aspects of um, more traditional comforted, comforting verses. We also have um, some, 
you know, hopeful and encouraging verses in the Gospels, right? Like Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you um, in my Father's house. There are many rooms. If it were not true, I wouldn't have told you so. So there's this idea we'll often talk about, like, you know, there is a place already prepared for us um, with God, with the Father, um, prepared by the Son. And then we'll also have, um, you know, there's there's verses from the epistles that will talk about we we do not weep as those without hope, right? That we mourn, um, but but for a moment, and then remembering that that there's hope at the end of this story. And I think sometimes what maybe some of my challenge within, um, or maybe my mission within my practice as a pastor, when when it comes to death and mourning and loss, is to really try to create space for people to experience and to honor the loss and the grief. Sometimes I I go where we. It feels like for me, we move too fast to don't worry, everything's going to be okay, we're all going to be in heaven, and, and it's all fine, right? So yes, we are very, very sad about this person, but now they're in heaven and everything's great, and it's going to be okay. And I just need more time. I, I, I'm not saying that that isn't a hope for me or isn't true, but and it is, but I need more time to go, yes, but right now it just stinks. That's and right, right now I'm just sad, and right now... Um, I think it's okay to be sad. And my theology tells me that Jesus stands here and weeps with me. Uh, because when uh, he finds out that Lazarus has passed away, he weeps, his friend. And and so we, we have, I, I need a God that will cry with me and, and also um, point me towards where there will be redemption. And hope, but I, I, I don't want to just move only to the one or feel like the, the Christian thing to do. Right. Is to just focus on the hope rather than focus on on the grief or the loss. So I I tell my congregants, um, if you want a pastor that will will cry and weep at your funeral, then you should hire me. But if if you want somebody that's just going to go straight to the joy and the dancing, pick somebody else because I need to do the crying for a while first. When I work with the Bar about Mitzvah families, Mm -hmm. one of the things I do with the the students as well as with the families, uh, the parents, is to teach them what not to say when you go to a shiva. Mm. A shiva means seven. It's the seven days of mourning that we have. And we have a services, usually in the liberal traditions, it's only in the evenings, just because people don't go in the mornings as much. The more traditional you are, the more likely you are to have morning and evening services. But when you walk in the room, what do you say? Everybody wants to say right. something. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, say something. Mm-hmm. We're here in the class. Right. You know, and again, and, and, and practice. It's, well, practice I say, your lines. I say, Okay, this side, you say something that you think is comforting. Mm-hmm. And I say, this side, you just rebut it right away. Mm-hmm. And then it's really easy for them to rebut it. They have, I don't even have to teach them right. how to do that. Right. You know, uh, he's, he's in a better place. Yeah, I wanted him with me. That's no better place. You know, mm-hmm. he's with God. Well, the hell, God can't keep him. I, I right. wanted him. What, what's God doing with, you know, on and right. on and on. The, right. the, the, the angry kind of things. And that's what people who are in mourning right. feel and right. think to themselves whenever we hear right. somebody say these banal pieces of nothingness. Mm-hmm. So I say, don't philosophize. Walk in. If you, say, if you need to say anything, which you don't, mm-hmm. silence is the appropriate response right. for death. Um, but if you need to say anything, say, I'm sorry for your loss. Boom. Mm-hmm. Enough. That's right. all you need to say. Right. Give them a hug if you know them well enough. Right. And don't say anything don't else. Don't try to make it better. Don't There's nothing you can do to make it better. And you just sound like an ignoramus. Right. You know, a stupid ignoramus. Yes. A dumb, stupid ignoramus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have... Um, 
we have biblical text that speaks to this, right? I right. mean, this is the book of Job and right. his friends come and they have things to say and things like, but there's silence also. And, and we, we need to be silent. We the need worst to. thing you can say is to be like a friend of Job saying, right. oh, oh, yeah, your loved one died because you, you messed have, it up. You messed up. You didn't do something right. You, you have some secret sin. That's right. That you don't know about. Examine your life and find it out. It's all your fault. You know, Right. In fact, we have a story in the Gospels where a, a person was born blind and they come to Jesus and they ask him, so who sinned? This boy, this little, you know, this kid or his parents? Because are you going to really believe that he somehow sinned in the womb, right, to be born blind? And this is this conversation. And Jesus said, nobody sinned. That's the answer. No one sinned. This, this is, happened. And then he says, this is for the glory of God. And then he heals the guy. Now, that's can, nice if you can heal the right, guy. Right, it's nice if you can heal the that. guy. That would be pretty cool, right? Some rabbis could. Jesus definitely could. He would just say, "Be healed," and it's done. But, but I read this interesting story, um, talking about how you know part of our theology is that we are all made perfect in God's image, and um, not that we don't mar that image by our actions and our disobedience to God, but, but our tattoos, right. All of these things, but, <laughs> but that God has created humanity and said that it is good. And so then the question comes back, well, what about, you know, people that are born with uh, a disability, differently abled or whatever. And so this father responded and said, ah, yes, but the perfection that is found then will be found in humanity's response to that individual rather. And I like this, right. Yeah. And so then, um, they told this, this father told this story about um, has his differently abled son and how they were part of a sports team, right? And it was, it was baseball and, and obviously it was obvious that his son was not going to be the top competitor. Um, but because of how all of the other teammates on both sides of the teams responded to his son, encouraged his son, participated, made it possible for him to round the bases and get the home run. Then the father said, see, perfection has now been found in how everyone responded. And that's what my son brings to this world, the opportunity for everybody else to be perfected in their response to him. And, and that's how God brings that. And I, I liked that idea, right? So I think that even as we respond to people who are lost, there's loss and there's suffering, um, we can just hold on to, to the bits of hope that we have in the meantime, that we believe that God is sitting here weeping with us, right? That we don't believe that we're alone. We don't have to try to ascribe some sort of greater meaning to it. We can just sit with it and trust that, that God can do something good in it. In the end, we don't have to say that, but that might just be the only thing that we speak to ourselves, at least that I speak to myself. It's, God, this is horrible. This is awful. Um, but my belief in your character and in your goodness is not that you caused it, um, not that you wanted this person to get cancer, not that you wanted this little one to pass, or that there's some unseen sin in this person's life that caused these things. I don't believe in a God who would do these things. I don't see that God in, te in text. No, I don't see God as getting bent out of shape over ritual minutiae. Right. And also, if God is like this, he's doing a really terrible job. Because there's a whole bunch of people out there that I can point to that are doing a terrible job <laughs> in their sin life, right? We can say, look at these people, human traffickers, drug dealers, like, you know, spouse abusers, all of these other persons. These persons need to have some sort of vengeance of God thrust upon them if that's what your theology states, right? Um, if As opposed to a redemptive step that would bring them back more into the image of God. 
but God's not doing that. So our idea that God's going to pay attention to some sort of little bit of minutia um, and punish somebody for some unforeseen, unknown sin. What a terrible burden to have to have to carry around in all of that. Um, so perhaps, you know, our, our hope in these moments of um, both life and death is, is simply that we, we trust that, that God's presence is with us in those moments. And we, we try to simply bring the presence of God um, with us as we sit with somebody in silence. So from the sublime to the mundane, um, going back to what we do, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that Jews do originally is it, there's a thing called a chavra kadisha, mm-hmm. or chavra kadisha in mm-hmm. Yiddish, which means the holy group. Mm-hmm. And they go and they wash the body. They they take mm. the body. So we didn't have mortuaries back then. Right. It was done by the community. And they washed the body and they put the shrouds on. I'd never seen it done. Hmm. When my father died, um, I still had never seen it done. So I knew the, the Hebra Kadisha was going to mm-hmm. to do that. And they let me come in. Usually they don't let family do that. Sure. But I was a rabbi and I wanted to learn. And one of the things that I and, I, and I saw, and one of the things that you do is you, you lay the body on its back. You never put it on his face. You mm-hmm. want to honor them. So mm-hmm. when they need to wash the back, they lift up right, the right side to mm-hmm. wash the right side, and then the left side, but you never put the body on its back. So you mm-hmm. want to honor that all the way through. My father had died of a heart attack. And um, so America specifies that you have to um, have an autopsy right. and unattended death. Uh, that does not happen in Israel, by the way, mm-hmm. unless you're going to be stopping a plague and you need to figure out exactly what's going right, on. Right. But otherwise, if it's pretty obvious what killed them, right. or you're not dealing with a murder case, right. you, it's forbidden right. to do an right, autopsy because the, the body is created in the image of God as right. well. But anyway, so my father had been cut open mm-hmm. from just below the neck all the way down past the belly button and then sewn up roughly like a, like a baseball. Right. And I could not believe that. Mm-hmm. I'd just never seen that before. Sure. And which confirmed to me mm-hmm. that unnecessary autopsies right. are a violation of the body. Mm-hmm. It was just, just gross. But I was surprised mm-hmm. that I was able to... As one of the things you don't know mm-hmm. is how can you, can you ever deal with touching a dead body and dealing with a dead body? Obviously, people who are mortuarians and embalmers mm-hmm. and, and things, they, they learn how to do it. And doctors and nurses mm-hmm. learn how to do it. And I learned how to do it. I learned how to walk up and be with people while they were alive and right. help them die and help right. their families right. watch the transition. And I just was able to, do, I don't even know where I go. My head goes into a different place yep. when, yep. I, Me when too. I have to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you, and I'm pretty sure you've been at the hospital when somebody yes. says, can yep. we disconnect the machine? Mm-hmm. And in homes. Right. And uh, I remember the first time I had to do that. Mm-hmm. And I knew the law. I mean, I knew that you could. Uh, there was no brainwave right. at all. Right. Uh, the, they were they were dead from every clinical perspective, except that this this, right. this girl. She was 21, Stanford student, mm-hmm. died of cystic fibrosis, mm-hmm. and she was still breathing mm-hmm. because she was on a respirator. So I said yes. You know, mm-hmm. family asked me, doctors mm-hmm. asked me, I said, and I here I am, and I wasn't that old. I was barely I 30, and uh, I said yes. Mm-hmm. You you can could disconnect it and I didn't know what to do it was my first time right so I stood at attention mm. for the several minutes mm. of labored loud mm. breathing mm. until she finally died I just I didn't know it wasn't saluting I right. was just standing right. at attention at the foot of her bed but that that was now it's it's easier but it's never totally easy because you know that you're watching somebody die 
Right, right. And I think, you know, for um, in our narrative, right, going back to the garden, this isn't the initial plan, right? So, so when right. we th- when we think about um, the body being separated from the breath of God, right? God forms and fills all in Genesis. He, you know, forms at day one and then fills it on day four, right? Forms day two, fills it on day five, and when he forms humanity, Adam, he then fills Adam with breath, and you know, that, that idea that even in the holy name of God, that as humanity is born and as even a little one is born today, they start to breathe and they can almost start to breathe God's name, right? This beautiful picture, this, this breathing in of, of the yod Hey vav He. And, and to see then for me, um, that breath stop. Yeah. That's a painful moment. Even if that person has lived a long, good life and it, it's, um, something that for me just then goes back to the belief that, 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 that the nefesh, right, the soul and then the breath of God, um, that that hasn't, um, that hasn't left, it's left the body, it's still present someplace, right? And, and trusting that that, um, Christians believe in a bodily resurrection, right? But that that reunification and however that's all going to happen and the mystery of all of that, um, but that somehow that unification happens back again um, with the breath, the breath of God unified again to, to the body. And um, then there are those who have died and come back and seen light while they were, right, right. were died. And since, you know, I died a couple of times this past summer, and was resuscitated. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. And, but I was, since I was so anesthetized, I don't remember the entire sure. month. So I, I never saw. <laughs> right. And, and I don't know yeah. if, that, if, that, if that gives, uh, you know, d- d- it disputes the fact that it exists because why wouldn't I remember it from another life? But anyway, um, but I have a friend who, um, who died several times until they finally got her stabilized. And she saw it. Mm-hmm. And her cardiologist had had experienced it vicariously, as it were, through the lives of many of his patients who had uh, uh, died and been mm. brought back. And so they've seen this river of light, mm. or this light. Or, and I, I, really, I really wish I had seen it. <laughs> I mean, that's the only thing. I, I, well, a lot Maybe of you I did, but it's just like a little men in black thing, right? And then like, <laughs> you had to watch the yeah, thing the, afterwards. The and little the neuralizer memory, right? sort of so, <laughs> No, I... <laughs> No, I didn't see it at all, but... but it's interesting, right? Because the first yeah. thing that God creates... Is light. Is light. Yeah. And then fills it with luminaries. Right. Right. Or uses yes. the light to fill the luminaries. But in any case, yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I don't know about that. I, um, For those people who see it, I don't debate it. I just wish I had been able to see it. And ultimately, I think where both of our faiths end up is that um, we trust... We, we trust the lives of the people that we love... And we trust our own life into the hands of a loving God. And there's not much else we can do. We could pretend we can be in control of this. We could pretend that our theology can assure us of some guaranteed outcome, that we've crossed every T, dotted every I, that you know we can have the death that we want, that we can have the life after, um, that we're all looking forward to in, in our various faith practices and traditions but ultimately for me it all comes down to just believing and trusting um, in, in a God that loves us and cares for us and, um, and is trustworthy Amen. and present Amen. Amen.